the top players and legends to the very best analysts around the world from wherever the beautiful game is played. This is BTP. Now, we're talking football. Yes, hello folks, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Pitch for Cold Football CFP Production. I'm your host, Joey Fairbrand, joined by my regular co-host, Callum McFadden. I'm delighted to have back here on the show, of course, the magnificent Ollie Kay. We've had Ollie on a couple of times over the last few weeks. Uh, as long-term listeners of the show will know, Ollie has been a stalwart of this show going back years and years and years. Uh, we are delighted to have him back now on a much more consistent basis. We want to reflect with the Premier League done and dusted. Um, I've had to do this through good at teeth for a week. Um, <laughs> but um, I do want to look back because I think if you put the allegiances aside, there's a lot to be admired about what Liverpool have done uh, and how they've done it. Um, as a Massachusetts native fan, one of the first things I said to myself when I watched this is, you know, there's not a single resource that was made available to Jurgen Klopp that isn't available to Manchester United managers. Liverpool are where they are as a result of proper strategy, proper recruitment, adherence to a vision, and, and, and seeing that vision through, having confidence in their manager, and, and having a facing running of a football club that prior to this, Ollie, remember they were maligned for having a transfer committee, and Klopp was asked how he would work with that. It was a big issue prior to Klopp. It's amazing how many of these issues disappeared once you had competent, competent management. So we're going to talk to Ollie about that and perhaps one or two other little football talking points. But um, first of all, let me welcome him to the show. Ali, welcome to the show, mate. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Apart okay. from the office. <laughs> Do you know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 I pulled the, 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 the plaster off the bandit, as we would say. Uh, the first <laughs> day or two was a bit painful watching the celebration. But I will say this, Ali, I did say in the immediate aftermath of that victory that as a Manchester United fan, look, I, I can do the theatrics, I can do the obvious and, and, and everything else, but I have to live in reality. And <laughs> what when I, when I saw City at their pump, the very peak of their powers, I thought to myself, no one will catch City until Guardiola goes. He has, he has resources at his disposal if they, get, if, they, if they have weaknesses. He's an exceptional coach. City weren't just beating teams, City were destroying teams. Club has done an amazing job for many different reasons. First of all, to get Liverpool over that psychological hump, which is very difficult, um, you know, to believe that they can win the league. They came so close so many times. He, he got them to believe. Uh, they, he didn't just win a Premier League. He won a European Cup. He won a World Club Cup. Uh, he'd done this playing attacking football uh, and consistent with Liverpool's culture. Um, and... If I'm a Liverpool fan, I would be <laughs> in love with this guy. And, and, but what I want to do is I want to pick the bones out of it, because there's a lot of things that, like we said, that have gone away, uh, like this transfer committee and everything else. I want to get behind the scenes and look at the things that Klopp really changed at Liverpool that aren't so obvious. Um, talk to me about some of the things, Ollie, that Jurgen Klopp has done behind the scenes at Liverpool that have resulted in this. Um, well, I would say that when he arrived back in October 2015, they'd had that sort of surge under Brendan Rodgers, which had been come from nowhere, really. Um, the club had been a bit of a mess since, you know, the Gillette Hicks takeover in 2007. They'd, they'd kind of, Benitez managed to get them to um, 
the Champions League final and managed to get them to a, you know, a good title challenge in 2009. But basically, the club was unraveling from behind the scenes from the moment um, Gillette and Hicks came in 2007. It was then FSG bought bought it in 2010, and they were kind of for the first five years they were kind of really just feeling their way in the business and not really making many good decisions and not really, um, you know, I, I, I thought the Rogers appointment worked well. I thought it was a sensible appointment, but it had, they had this massive surge under him and then it fell away again. And the, the, the belief just evaporated from the club. And I think it sort of heightened the sense amongst Liverpool fans and players and staff that, you know, we had that one-off title challenge, but but we're miles away now. You know that was that, that was the mood um, within the club. I mean, they they, cha- they competed, uh, so they reached the Champions League once in what was it five six seasons and didn't get beyond the group stage. So he moved into a club that was, um, you know, they'd sold Suarez after uh, in twenty fourteen. Gerard had moved on. Sterling had moved on for for big money. Um, it was a club that you know that they had some talented players that, that this um, transfer committee had brought in. You know, people like Coutinho and Emre Chan and, and people like that. But there wasn't um, there wasn't like there was really the nucleus of a good you know a, a team that you could imagine getting into the top four. Never mind winning the league within five years. Um, there was no real sense of direction there was no real sense of a project there was no um great unity behind the scenes i remember being at the at klopp's first press conference um the, the day he was appointed back in october 2015 and he said that what he'd gleaned from afar you know watching games from afar and the way he diagnosed it was that there was no real belief or hope uh in amongst the, um, I think he said that the LFC family feels a bit, you know, a bit, uh, I, can't, I can't remember the word, but, but he was basically sort of saying everything was full of doubt. And his job, he said, which is, you know, beautifully put, he said, you know, we need to go from doubters to believers. And so, I mean, I've talked there about what the backdrop was, but within, within, I think, two months they'd gone to man city um you know a very good man city team at the time and won was it four one i think they'd gone to chelsea and won three one they'd gone to southampton in the league cup and won i think it was six one or something like that they had this um run in the europa league where they they beat man united 2-0 2-0 at Anfield and then drew at Old Trafford. They had that ridiculous game against Dortmund, his Dortmund team. And suddenly, the feel-good factor was was back. Um, that Europa League run, I think, was really important. But do you remember that Sunday afternoon where they, where they drew, scrambled the last-minute equaliser against West Brom, 2-2, and Klopp made a point of taking yeah. them taking the yeah. players in front of the cop and, yeah, and you know applauding them and yep. celebrated you know they they celebrated it more than they celebrated mm-hmm. any victory this season um and that was all about trying to sort of sort of um reconnect with the, you know between the fans and and, and and the players and you know rebuild a bit of a um 
you know, a connection that had been lost, really. Um, and you could have, you know, that, that, that could have backfired because I think a few, you know, maybe it was even the next weekend, they, learned, they went to Watford and got beaten 3-0. And there are lots of, lots of really poor results along, alongside the good ones in that season. But there was a real sense of something was building. Um, you know that, that that he was really putting something together, and then if you look at the what they've done since then, it's just been up and up and up and up. And um, you know, it wasn't necessarily at an incredible speed. Um, you know, the the, the the improvement that they made in this sort of second or his first full season, his second full season, it was considerable. But I don't think anybody would have said even when they reached that Champions League final in 2018, that they were going to be recording 97 and potentially 100 plus points in the next two seasons. It's, it's been, you know, he's regarded as this manager who is, um, you know, impulsive and all about motivation and, um, you know, energy rather than being admired as a, a you know, a tactician or a strategist or a, a builder. But, what he has done in terms of the way he's built that team and the way he's tweaked things, you know, each season to, to improve whatever their weakness was. Um, I think it's just an amazing, I think he's done a phenomenal job. Um, and yet, you know, there are, there are um, little things which I could talk about um, uh, in terms of, you know, things behind the scenes and, and um, you know, building relationships behind the scenes. But but I I think in addition to what he's done in terms of changing the whole spirit of the club and the, the team and the and the players and taking them all to the to a, a completely different level. I think if you look at them on a on a Saturday or you know Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever they're playing, they actually look one of the most brilliantly coached, brilliantly trained, managed Teams that you could imagine, you could yeah. imagine. I mean, yeah. everyone knows their job, and everyone looks like they're playing at the absolute top of the game. And enjoying the football, absolutely enjoying it, but also being committed to you know the business, you know, the business of getting results and and, and slogging out results when, when possible, when necessary. They've had to do that a lot this season. I, I think it's, I think the job he's done is. Phenomenal, really. Gary Neville, Ollie, you'll have heard the quote, summed up by saying he's turned £30 million players into £130 million players, while other managers have turned £130 million players into £30 million. <laughs> For me, the two players that epitomise that, particularly are Jordan Henderson, who under Rogers was a maligned figure at times, especially when he initially took on the captaincy. There was a lot of questions being asked, can he step up to the plate and replace Gerard as such? And the other one, being Scottish, of course, I have to mention him, Andrew Robertson. Yeah. Andrew came in and from Hull, took a wee bit of time to adapt, but his progress year on year, just like the teams, has been an absolute joy to watch. How much of that is down, not only to Klopp, but his coaching team? Because people forget that his long-term assistant manager left him during his time at, at Anfield, and, and that didn't seem to halt the progress at all. Yeah, I mean, when um, Zeliko Buvac, he, he left in, I think it was, I think it was when they were in Rome for the Champions League semi-final in 2018 that that story came out. And a lot of what people were 
writing and talking about at the time was that he was the brains of the operation and that this was this was going to unravel <laughs> uh, because um, because Klopp couldn't function without him. Well, I'm sure he's a very, very good coach and a very intelligent coach. And that's what everybody says. But I mean, Klopp since then has gone from strength to strength and he's brought in uh, Pep Linders, who's, um, who was at the club previously. And he, he's, he's got a very good reputation. And, and um, I mean, everything I hear about... Um, the backroom staff, the sports science staff, the analysts, and people like Michael Edwards behind the scenes. Um, it's, you know, everybody seems to be praised for the job they do. I mean, there's, there's so many sort of individual stories in, amongst the players and, you know, where you can say, well, this guy, this guy is the, the great story here. But I, I do believe um, if you take Klopp's influence out, out of it, if you, if you, if you, if you, you know, let's let's say that they appointed. I don't know. Um, give me a give me a sort of average to good manager that they could have appointed at, at that time. Um, I mean, Carlo Ancelotti was was yeah, maybe as well. Ancelotti, Pochettino, but maybe someone like that. Pochettino, maybe when he's leaving to happen, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, Ancelotti is not an average to good manager. Ancelotti is one of the you know best managers of his generation, and and is and is a guy who has um, you know won three Champions League and and, and he's doing a good job at Everton. Um, um, but I can't imagine that even someone like Ancelotti would have sort of inspired so much individual and collective improvement in absolutely everybody, and it's not even just the ones. Who were there? I mean, even someone like Coutinho, who was a very good raw talent and and and, and was playing well under Rodgers, he went up a level under under uh, Klopp. Then was sold, you know, on his insistence, um, and as you know, his form's gone off a cliff. You know, well, he, he did at Barcelona. He's, he's picked up a bit at Bayern, but he must look at look at it and think, well. What's you know, I, I, I did the wrong thing there? Emre Chan, who who was a good player at Liverpool and, and got better under Roger, uh, uh, under Klopp, you know he leaves for Juventus on on a free transfer and Liverpool don't really skip a beat. They, they bring in Fabinho, who yeah. goes from strength to strength, and you've got all these players like you know Robertson and Henderson and I mean even someone like um, like Sadio Mane, who I thought was a really good. Uh, player at Southampton and I was aware that Man United were looking at him and Spurs were looking at him and Liverpool were looking at him and it was just a case of well someone's going to take a punt on him and and you know maybe maybe he'll go to that next level and maybe he won't but he wasn't somebody blinding you know he wasn't someone who was a blindingly obvious target or somebody that was going to go from as Gary Neville says sort of 30 million to 130 million but, but his improvement year on year has been amazing. Salah's improvement at Liverpool has been amazing. Um, yeah, Fabinho, who, when he first arrived, you know, his first few months in the Premier League, he looked like he, you know, the pace of it was going to be too much, um, despite looking a really good player at Monaco. Andy Robertson, um, his first few months, uh, you know, he was very much in and out of the team and was trying to sort of learn, learn the, the way the team worked. And he, looked a little bit out of his depth at times and then suddenly you know everything just sort of came together and I would say Van Dyke's arrival was a big 
factor there, but it just seems like the whole, you know, individually and collectively, everybody's absolutely, you know, I mean, not 10 out of 10 every week, but eight, nine out of 10 every week. You barely see a performance where you think, oh God, he, he's not playing very well at the moment. Um, or, or he has he hasn't had a good season. Now, normally, a, a title-winning team would carry two or three players who, you know, like, like at Manchester United, Ryan Giggs had the odd season where, you know, amongst <laughs> twenty plus, he had the odd season where, you know, he was he didn't really hit the heights. Certainly did. And and um, you know, D- D- Dwight York, for example, in in, in the seasons. After 98-99, he wasn't necessarily up at the previous level. Whereas everybody in this Liverpool team seems to be, you know, that in terms of the first 11, 13, 14, 15 players, they seem to have barely put a foot wrong. And that's, I guess, shown in the statistics where they've they've barely dropped a point all season. It's it's amazing. You know, just to get that type of consistency, all the other players, there's a couple of things have to happen. First of all, I have to completely love the manager. They have to know who they work for. Because <clears throat> what you see on the pitch is the end result of uh, standards off the pitch and how they live their life and how they, how they eat, how they train, how they apply themselves to a working environment, following everything to a T. But one of the things that Klopp seems to get right is that the professionalism is really important, but also he, has, he balances that out with making it fun. You, you, like we said, you see these Liverpool players, they play with a smile on the face. They're better players than what many of us individually would have. These, Klopp has made these players the best they could ever be. I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold would not, I don't care if he goes to any other football club in the world, uh, he doesn't reach the heights, or he certainly doesn't excel where he's at right now. And that's true mm-hmm. for anyone in that Liverpool team. Um, so when I look at this, I look at, to, to win a league, you get tested in so many different ways. Uh, and to overcome someone like Guardiola, who has massive resources at its disposal, Liverpool, you know, certainly are a wealthy football club, but they have to be much more surgical in how they buy players. To do what they've done, to have that intensity every week, to not have injuries, where uh, they've done a wonderful job of managing the squad, but from a from a psychological perspective, from a from a medical perspective, and they've just got everything right off the pitch. The one thing that winds me up as a United fan is the slow. Only one. Yeah, the the ones <laughs> the, the the only thing I ever take issue with, I have to say, and I, they, they, I'm sure Liverpool fans would expect this, is the the idea that it means more because it's Liverpool. But what I will concede, where it means more, <clears throat> is that. If you go to someone like Chelsea and you deliver league titles, there's, it doesn't have the same intimacy. The, the city's not going to fall in love with you. Mourinho can walk out of Chelsea. Angelotti can walk out of Chelsea and they're quickly forgotten. Jurgen mm. Klopp now has a relationship with Liverpool and a city where it's a complete love affair. And that is where I will concede that it means more than the likes of Chelsea and some of these soulless football clubs. But I just think what impresses me so much about it, Ollie, is that every, they've got everything right. Because uh, FSG were not uh, these wealthy owners. We're going to come in and throw huge amounts of money at it. They, they, they've got everything right. And they've got every player right. It, you know, you hear Solskjaer talk about, I'd rather have um, a hole in my squad than an asshole. Yeah, yeah. 
One yeah. bad apple spoils the whole barrel. He has got every single thing right. The working environment, everything. And I just think that, it, it, that he deserves a man's credit for doing that. Not just him, but his background stuff. And also, remember, this is a foreign coach to come and do that in England. You know, it, it's, it just, it's such a magnificent achievement for him to do that and get everything right. He did to, to do that in any working environment, I think, uh, whether it's an office or football club, just man, deserves huge, huge credit. Um, so I think he's impressed me in how they've got everything right professionally across the board. Yeah, and I, I think they, I think he he inherited some some very good pros um, as well. I mean, I, I think that's possibly something that doesn't get um, recognised enough. Um, someone like Jordan Henderson, who I I never thought he was going to be the player or, or leader or captain that, that he's become. Mm-hmm over the last two seasons, but he was always recognised as a, a very good, you know, old head on young shoulders, very good captain type. James Milner, the same. Um, you know, these guys are apparently, you know, every bit as important as Klopp in terms of keeping the discipline and keeping the unity in the dressing room. Kind of you know, Liverpool was um, a club in the past where a lot leaked out of the dressing room and a lot of, you know, you'd hear of a lot of different agendas and you know, different players would fall out with the manager and, and, and um, you know, with different managers. And it, it never seemed like a kind of great uh, unit. I mean, well, no, I, I would put it differently. When they were winning, it always seemed like, you know, like there was some incredible spirit there, you know, Istanbul and, and you know, famous comebacks in Europe, etc. But... I don't think team spirit was really a strength um, until this team really came along. And, and you know, Milner is obviously known as you know, the ultimate pro and, and he and Henderson apparently really kind of clamped down on any sense of, um, you know, if anybody's standards drop for a second um, in, that, in that dressing room on the training pitch, on the pitch. He and, and you know, Milner and Henderson are, are onto them straight away. Van Dijk and Wijnaldum have apparently sort of joined that kind of leadership group as well and, and Lalana as well. And, and I think it's, you know, that culture, which, you know, that culture of, you know, being a team that wins, um, that is, I think, what Liverpool lacked for. I mean, even when Klopp first came in, you know, they got to two cup finals the first year, the you know, the League Cup and the Europa League and and then they were getting to, you know, semi-finals in the League Cup, I think the next year was it, and, and you know, losing and losing in the Champions League final. And this sort of idea built up that they were, you know, it was a team that lacked ruthlessness and and lacked um real resilience. And that, you know, I, I spoke to James Milner about that because I was doing a book with him last summer and, and that idea really kind of offended him that, that, that he was part of a team that was being characterised as a soft touch. But then you looked at some of the games that they had, like early 2017-18, I'm just trying to think that, you know, there was a 3-3 game, uh, 3-3 draw at um, Arsenal where they conceded something like, it was like three goals in about six minutes or five minutes, ten minutes, something like that. Um, they were, you know, three 0 up in Sevilla in the Champions League and drew three all. Um, they were just like a team that, that, that they seemed to crumble under pressure, and somehow 
from that. And I, obviously, I, I do think the Van Dijk signing was massive in terms of, and, and then the Allison signing on top of that. But their mentality changed as, as a group of players. And maybe, you know, maybe Van Dijk's arrival was, you know, maybe those two, you know, Van Dijk, Allison, and uh, Fabinho, maybe they were sort of the, the three final pieces in the jigsaw. But it went from a team that was, um, you know, renowned for bottling it, really, you know, a flaky team, to being the least flaky team imaginable. Yeah. Because if you look at them this season, I don't think they've hit, they've often hit the heights football-wise that they hit even, you know, in terms of football that would make you go, wow. Um, you know, th- there was a, a brilliant win at Leicester. They were brilliant against Crystal Palace the other night. Um Brilliant in the second half against Southampton. Brilliant at times against Arsenal at Anfield and Man City at Anfield. But I don't think they've they've blown teams away in the way that they were doing at times two, three, four years that ago. That Barcelona win the year before at Anfield. Yeah, all the um, performances. Yeah, I've seen it was magnificent. Birthday. But but what they've done this season is you know, there's barely even been a sort of there's there's barely even been a, a forty five minutes where you'd say oh they weren't at it. Yeah, so, you know they, they've been. If you look at the results, you know, through September and I think December, no, January, February, they were kind of slogging result. You know, two late late wins against Leicester and Spurs and Villa and Palace, I think it was, and you know, games where they went away to Spurs and Wolves in the in the new year, and it, they were kind of slogging their way to results. It looks like it's a procession if you look at the league table, but I mean, I think some of that half of their wins have been by one goal, which I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that to pick holes in it. I, I'm saying that it's been more about the mentality and that sort of desire and unity and resilience than brilliant football. I think the football has been brilliant, but I think more than Man City, um, last season or, or the season before, it's been about the resilience. Something that we've spoken to Graham Soonis about recently, Ollie, is how to improve this team going forward. I know that might sound like a, a strange question considering the success they've had this season, but, but Graham Soonis is very strong on the fact that, in his opinion, you should always buy when you're strong. Yeah. Bearing that in mind, where do you think Liverpool can add to this team? Is it simply just adding depth to the bench or could you improve that starting eleven in a particular department? I think it's very, very hard to improve the eleven, yeah. you know, with a single with a single signing. I mean, you, yeah. you were talking about. Um, I mean, if, if you, I, I guess people have often focused on the midfield, and saying, "Well, that's that's the area where they're not world class." But if you look at the way they've performed this season, whether it's been Henderson, Fabinho, Wijnaldum, Milner, Oxlade Chamberlain at times, Cater is a great talent, but hasn't quite sort of shown it yet in the Liverpool shirt. Um, there's this, you know, I, I think it's really hard for anyone to come into that midfield and do a better job than, you know, Gini Wijnaldum is. But I, I think he's incredibly underrated. Fabinho, incredibly underrated. Um, so I think what they've got to do is make sure they're, that they're, they're still in a position to, you know, to keep winning. And the, the interesting thing with... with um, with this Liverpool team is it's not it's not an old team by any means, but 
if you look at the you know the profile of the squad, um, you know Henderson has just turned thirty, I think, and uh, Fabinho's no, sorry, Wijnaldum's twenty nine. I think Van Dijk is twenty eight. Um, Salah, Mane, Firmino, twenty eight. They've you know a lot of their core players. You know the real nucleus of the team. A lot of them are you know at what should really be their peak years and you know some will some will because they're in, in brilliant shape physically you know some will go beyond the the sort of conventional peak of of 30 but when you've got a team that's that um where you've got so many players who are of the same age you think well they should they should collectively remain at a very high level next season individually and collectively even though i think it's very hard to get, you know, 90 plus, 95 plus points, three seasons running. Yeah. You know, Man City, Man City haven't managed that. Um, but, you know, I think if you look at, you know, the, that group of players who are sort of 28, 28, 29, you know, you, you would imagine they would still be at the same level this coming season. Um, but then if you're looking sort of far beyond that, if you're thinking, well, would you want, that to be your front three in two years' time, three years' time. I think, I think it's it's difficult because if 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 one of them was if one of them was twenty nine and one of them's twenty five, you'd say, well, you know, that's the one we need to maybe look for a replacement for. But as it is, I think you're thinking, well, who's who's going to be the one that's going to need replacing first? Or and because of Liverpool's financial model as well. There's a situation where you know, a lot of what a lot of the money they've spent over the last few years has been generated by uh, by sales and yep. you know by selling Coutinho. So are they going to have to look for? And I'm not saying this summer, but maybe next summer. Are they going to have to think? Well, maybe we're going to have to move on one of those front three and sell them at sort of at their peak or or, or as as they're perhaps moving over their peak. Um, and it's really difficult. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, Salah, Mane, whoever, that their form is going to drop off a cliff. I don't think it is because they are remarkable physical specimens. But I think to play the way Klopp wants to play, which is high energy and, and you know, incredibly reliant on what you do off the ball as well, you, as well as what you do on it. And also thinking about that long-term approach that Klopp wants to make in terms of not just winning it once, but you know, winning it again, winning it, you know, being in a, a great position in two, three, four, five years' time, I think they are going to have to think about the next stage of the evolution of the team. So, ideally, I think they would, you know, may, maybe not be buying first first cho- first choice players this summer, but by but buying players who by Buying someone who could maybe take over from Salah in two years' time or a year's time or three years' time, whatever. You know, likewise. Can I just with quickly yeah. follow Ollie on that and ask? We mentioned Coutinho earlier on. Do you think Klopp would consider bringing him back as a sort of backup, if you'd like, to those front three? Because let's be honest, the situation Coutinho's in at Barcelona and this, the loan spell at Bayern not going so well, Liverpool could probably get him and he'd probably buy into that, I think. I think it would need to be an incredibly um, 
advantageous, you know, incredibly um, financially appealing deal for Liverpool even to consider it. I, I think um, Coutinho obviously left and uh, he left under on under a bit of a cloud really because he, you know, he, he upset the cloth a bit with, with his attitude in the final weeks and upset, you know, a few of his teammates and the club. You know, they, they didn't want to sell him, but they, they ended up thinking, well, you're being obstructive here and, and it makes sense for the unity of this team to, to, to sell him. Um, they, you know, football-wise, they, they didn't want to sell him, but, but you know, it was, it was becoming hard to keep him. So um, I think with the sort of bad blood that was there, I think it would have to be um, yeah, a really, really easy, no-brainer type deal for Liverpool even to consider it. I think if he's being offered around, um, you know, Arsenal and Chelsea and Man United and other other English clubs and, you know, offered to Italy and, and, and so on, I think there will be clubs who are more keen to sign Coutinho before. Yeah. I, I think I think if, if it got to the end of the transfer window and Liverpool hadn't got, um, you know, recruitment, you know, reinforcements of the quality they wanted, and there was a really favourable deal um, to be done with Coutinho. Maybe in those circumstances they would, but I think there are other clubs whose need and desire for Coutinho would be greater. Yeah, look, <clears throat> he's a great player. A great individual player. His exit did not hurt Liverpool. You know, in many ways, sometimes when you've got an individual focal point in a team, Ollie, there's a lot of goals in Liverpool from different positions. And you have to evolve where you don't become. Sometimes you can become, even mentally, uh, lethargic and be lazy and rely on one player to bail you out in a game. Uh, United did that with Pogba at times. Even yep. with Van Nistelrooy, they had to sell Van Nistelrooy to then go on and win the Champions League. Um, <clears throat> so, um, the question you have here is this is a new era with Jurgen Klopp, Ollie. You know, we, the Ferguson era is the, the eras of managers being the clubs 15, 20 years just doesn't exist anymore. No. But I think Jurgen Klopp is, is well aware that you may go to other clubs that like Real Madrid, whatever, Barcelona, that um, will offer more resources than Liverpool. But I think what you get at Liverpool is something you don't repeat anywhere else. I think that for wherever you go in your career, you see this with special clubs where players will forever look back on their time there as the, as the, as the greatest time of their career. You even see it with Fernando Torres and other players. Um, so, but like Pep Guardiola says, four years at a massive club now is extremely draining mentally. Mm. What does Jurgen Klopp, because he's done everything with Liverpool, um, do you see Klopp being there 10 years from now? Do you see him uh, bucking that trend and being someone that spends, you know, as long as he wants at Liverpool? Or do you see him saying, you know what, I need a break from football. This is very intense. It's very hard to do. Uh, what, what type of person do you think he is? And what do you think lies ahead from him with that? <clears throat> I think he's somebody who loves a long-term project and, and, and loves, you know, I mean, he did seven years at Mainz, seven years at Dortmund. Mm. Um, he's, what is he, four and a half years into into Liverpool. So I, I would imagine, um, you know, many United fans and Everton fans and Man City fans and everybody else is thinking, all right, well, maybe only two and a half years to go. Mm -hmm. he, um, he's, he's under contract till 2024. 
and has talked about you know, the idea of doing you know, nine years, um, which is not to say he will leave at that point. But I, I think from what he said, I think you could perhaps uh, deduce that maybe that's when he's thinking of leaving, you know, 2024. Um, and, you know, to, to stay beyond there, I think would be, I mean, if you look at how things went at Dortmund, I mean, he he was, he had, you know, that sort of appreciation and, and the club being built around him um, that you talk about with Liverpool. And that was the case in Dortmund. It may, you know, maybe yeah. it says more about him than, than the clubs in question, but, you know, he, he had that, he had that there as well. Um, I always look at him and, you know, when he was at Dortmund, when, I remember when he left Dortmund in, or, or it was announced he was going to leave Dortmund in 2015, I was writing a piece that day and I, I sort of said, I, I couldn't imagine him at, say, a Real Madrid or a Barcelona. I think it needs, he needs to be at more of a sort of uh, blue collar club, um, you know, club that's, you know, a bit, a bit grittier. And, you know, look, Liverpool is, the modern Liverpool is, is, is quite corporate, don't, don't get me wrong, but um, I think there's only certain clubs that he would really suit. And maybe, yeah, that's, that yeah, maybe, maybe that's really underestimating him and, or typecasting him too much, but you know, I, I, don't, I, I think he's more Dortmund than, than Bayern yeah. Munich. Yeah. I think he, he's more Atletico Madrid than, than Real yeah. Madrid. I think he's more you know, Liverpool than Arsenal. So, more um, more Lidl and Sainsbury's. Not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, more no, Levi's I mean, than Armani. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's probably right. But he's um yeah, I I, I don't I don't know what, what he wears, but I know I know it to me. I know it I don't think he makes I don't think he makes I think it's probably his glasses that is the most expensive thing he wears. This guy wears yeah. a uh, a baseball cap on the baseball cap on the on the touchline. He, he's. Um, I love his humility. I do. I love that person. His personality. I, I completely agree with you all. He just I didn't mean to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but um, I think his if, if he was someone that didn't have that persona, it would be a difficult fit for him at Liverpool. Uh, he has the character of the city in many ways and embodies the values that Liverpool and Liverpool fans like to purport that um, is consistent with the football club. Like I said, as a human being, uh, he's an extremely likeable man. And I can't remember many things or anything that's come out of that guy's mouth um, where I, it's particularly bothered me. I mean, almost admired through my hands over my eyes. Times where I'm <laughs> like, you know, um, I just really, really like the guy. I mean, as a human being, uh, he breaks my heart as a football manager. But, <laughs> but, you know, I have to be honest that he is very difficult to dislike. Yeah, I mean, he's, um, look, he's, not, um, he's not afraid to, um, you know, uh, shout at people or, or lose it lose it with journalists at, yeah. at, at times i mean not not to on a ferguson scale but you know I don't, you, you do sometimes see i'm, I'm, I'm just going to try and you know uh, wean you off your love affair with him now but you know you, you know you, you, you sort of yeah on a touchline he, he's, he's sometimes kind of a bit too um, yeah i agree with that a bit too animated for some yes. tastes um mm-hmm. You know, he'll sometimes have a blast at the referee. He'll sometimes have a whine. He'll yeah. complain about the wind. He'll be, you know. But, but I've got to say, I mean, he's somebody who, you know, 
if, if you're a neutral, you, you probably grudgingly admire him. Well, no, I'd say a rival, rival fans probably grudgingly admire him. Neutrals probably really like him. And I, if you, if he's a manager of your club, you know, like at Dortmund and at Liverpool, yeah, people just idolise him. And I, I watched the other day the the um, the video of when he left Dortmund, um, and he was he did this uh, speech which went up on the big screen, um, and all you know the, the, the ground just fell silent um, watching it. And you know, he cuts his cuts the stands, and you know, he, people were you know crying, and and, and he had a terrible season that season, you know, he'd, he'd sort of probably outstayed his, not welcome, but, but, but he'd, but he'd, you know, it, you know the, the bubble had burst in that, in that final season and it had been a tough time and he was just sort of t- saying quite obvious things, but the way he says them, yeah. um, people just, you know, he's just, he's just a people person and is, uh, you could imagine if he wasn't, you know, a football manager, you could imagine him being incredibly successful doing something with people, whether it was, you know, managing yeah. uh, some kind of startup mm. or, or being a political leader or, or, or something. He's, he's a populist in the, you know, the, the best sense of the word. And, and he's, he's just got a way with people where, um, yeah, forgive me for another tangent, but when, I, when he was in, Dortmund. I, I went out there to interview him um, in, uh, I think it's October 2013. It's a few, you know, five months on from the Champions League final, and, and yeah, I was kind of intrigued by the guy. And was he as, um, you know, was he all he appeared to be? And you know, there's a, there's a few of us English journalists there, and for about an hour and a half, he just. Basically, you know, he kind of had us in his hand. He, he was just sort of holding court in a way that um, the, the aura, the charisma, was just like off the scale. Um, you'd yeah. swear he'd been taking something um, before he came into the room. Honestly, that's that's not that's not I'm legend. Don't we? I, I remember. <laughs> I remember there was I remember there was a uh, a German coach who was 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 found guilty of that. But the um, but um, no, he he was he was um, honestly his his aura, his charisma is off the scale. Um, and you know Ferguson has got an aura. Mourinho has an aura. Wenger has an aura, but not in the sort of way that Klopp just dominates a room for for. You know, from the moment he walks into it to the the um, to, to the moment he walks out, it's it's an incredible thing. And when when he left the room, we all just like turned to each other and went, "Oh my god, that that guy!" You know, imagine playing for him. Yeah. And I think I you know I've, I've I've had a sense of that from from players I've spoken to at different clubs where they say, "You know, God, what what must it be like for to, you know to play for that guy?" and and yeah, you, you can see it, can't you? And it, you know, I, I'm sure if you can turn 30 million players into 130 million players, um, and if you can, you know, you wonder what you could do with a sort of useless, out of shape, um, 45 year old. Um, you know, you might, you might, you might make me make me play like. Um, like I was when I was slightly less useless, useless when I was 30. <laughs> he's, 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 um, well, he, 
he's he's just somebody who I think inspires belief in people and you know people yeah. believe in him and they believe in themselves and they believe in you know, whatever that team is trying to do yeah great communication. one of the things I've, I've got to ask you about Ollie is the sort of succession plan now I know Liverpool will be hoping that that doesn't need to be put into action anytime soon but yeah. the talk is always around Stephen Gerrard now Stephen's obviously based in Scotland where I am and He's, he's, he's definitely improved Rangers. He's got them going in the right direction. But next year will be a massive year for him in terms of trying to stop 10 in a row in Scotland. One of the things I worry about with Steven Gerrard is that he's kind of in danger of becoming the next Ryan Giggs in terms of the expectations there that he is going to take over. But in the end, I, don't, I, I personally just don't think it will happen because... For me to replace Klopp with Gerrard would be a big gamble, even if Klopp leaves with another few league titles in the bag. Yeah, I I agree with you there. I mean, the job he's doing, I mean, you you definitely say he's um, improved Rangers. I mean, he's you know he spent a bit of money as well, um, and he's had a sort of free reign to do sort of whatever he wanted in terms of staff and players and so on. And it's been. Um, I mean, the improvement is is obvious, and the improvement in uh, certain players is obvious. And but is the job that he's doing? You know, if you if you take away the the name Stephen Gerrard, well, look, if you take away the name Stephen Gerrard, he probably wouldn't have got the job in the first place. Being honest, but sure. but if you take away the the name Stephen Gerrard, he's still doing a good job. But it's not a job that would um, alert you. You know, would alert Liverpool. To, to, I mean, it's not like the job that Graeme Souness was doing at, at Rangers when Liverpool took him away, and um, that didn't go very well. Um, it, it's, um, I, I think, in order to, I, mean, I, I was impressed with what they did in, in Europe this season, Rangers, but in order to um, be the person that's at the front of the queue when that day comes, which I'm sure. With all respect to Rangers, I'm sure that is its absolute sort of driving ambition in management um, to, to be the person who succeeds Clark or to manage Liverpool one day. I think he needs to, yeah, you know, to take them up another level, which might mean winning the league or it might not. Um, but but to you know to to improve this Rangers team so much that people go, wow, that that's what a Steven Gerrard team would look like. And maybe to you know do do well in Europe as you know do even better in Europe next season. I, I think it's it's not easy to. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's it's not easy to win the title with Celtic, but it but it's it's a lot easier than it is with Rangers. And I think if the if the if the bar is that you have to win the, the title with Rangers and then your and then your Liverpool manager in waiting, that I think that's quite difficult as well. Um, so I, I don't. I, I kind of agree with you. I, I think it's it's difficult for Gerald to make such a big impression at Rangers or big impact at Rangers that that it becomes a kind of natural, obvious, non-sentimental appointment. Um, yeah, we have Chris Sutton on tomorrow. I'm looking forward to p- telling him exactly what you just said because I think him and the Celtic fans will disagree with you. My Celtic fans will disagree with you. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he would say that that um, it, you know it's, it's not a walk in the park for Celtic every season. And I'm sure if he acknowledges that Gerard has actually improved Rangers, 
then he would, you know, uh, um, yeah, I, I think I think that's beyond argument that, that he's actually improved them. But um, and then it's it, obviously the difficulty is actually trying to go from being the second best team to being the best team. I mean, that's you know, it's what Klopp's done um, with Liverpool, but mm-hmm. it, it's so hard to do with with players who perhaps don't have the capacity for improvement or aren't able to take on, you know, as much ideas maybe. Or And let's be honest, and Gerard probably isn't as good a coach as, as Klopp. I mean, that's, that, that's, um, that's, that, that would be the obvious thing to say here. Um, so I, I think um, when the time comes, I mean, Pep Blinders, who I mentioned earlier, is his assistant. He might be somebody who's in the frame. Um, if you look at four years' time, I mean... A lot can change in four years. I mean, yeah. although although he'd he'd won the Bundesliga uh, in twenty eleven, um, if you look at sort of four years before he was appointed at, at Liverpool, Klopp wouldn't have been at the top of anyone's list yet. Yet mm-hmm. four years later, he was the he was the obvious man to go to go for. You know, Mourinho when he got the Chelsea job. I mean, four years before that, he was only just starting out as manager. So you know, it could be it could be that somebody that is completely off the radar now emerges. I think that, you know, I think Liverpool would want there to be somebody that would be of the same philosophy, character, aura, mindset, but it'll be extremely uh, hard act to follow, even if, you know, Liverpool, say, in four years, four years have won one more title or perhaps no more titles, but a couple of FA Cups or whatever. Well, I think when it comes to these appointments, Ollie, um, football is littered with sentimental appointments. And you yeah. must only make this appointment based on things that have nothing to do with the things that we talked about. It's great that you're a legend, but that should have nothing to do with it. You must select an, a, 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 someone who takes the boxes. I mean, if you look at Matt Bosby, for example, you know, Matt Bosby played for Liverpool and played for Man City. Yeah. By today's standards, he never would have got the job at United because he wasn't... Alex Ferguson never set foot in Old Trafford before he got the job, became a true legend. And so um, I am not in favour of this. But you said something earlier, I want to finish up on this. He said something that I, that I picked up on, it was quite interesting. And he said Stephen Gerrard wouldn't have gotten a job if it wasn't Stephen Gerrard. I think the same is also true of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So... Wait, without it, they didn't get this on a coach credentials. We are in the middle of a discussion today about equal opportunities about for individuals. How do we make sure that when these decisions are made in the future, and I know the Premier League are trying to act on this, that people of all ethnicities are given the same consideration because there's black legends at football clubs that somehow don't have the same resonance and the same consideration with chairman or appointees at football clubs when it comes to selecting someone to take their reins. Mm-hmm. And these are things we must change. And I don't know if it's an inherent bias, if it's well, for whatever the reason, I don't know, I'm not the person making these decisions. But um, this is something that absolutely has to change in going forward. So what do we do going forward to make sure that that consideration process includes people of all ethnic backgrounds it's a very you know it's, it's, it's an extremely important thing and you, know, mm-hmm. you get you know you write about it or you tweet about it and, and 
you will always get people saying, oh, you know, oh, what? So you want people just to get jobs, you know, because based on the colour, isn't that racist? And you think, well, no, that's not the point. The point is that um, opportunities should be equal. And and I think, you know, p- people will you know, turn it on its head and say, oh, what? So Chris Hewton should get interviewed for the... Man United job, or Chris, you know, or you know, Keith Curl should get in, in, invited, interviewed for, you know, Chelsea or, or whatever. I mean, it's not. Well, it's I mean, not you could argue that. Chris Shooting was better qualified than Sauce Curl, to be fair, but yeah, but oh, you know. well, yeah, 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 you certainly yeah. could actually, but but in terms of you know, you said something there that that sort of triggered something in my mind, and you, you know, where you said, you know, the black legends, you know, the, or the you know, legends of of. Different, the non-white legends mm-hmm. at, at various clubs. I mean, if I'm thinking of, um, you know, Liverpool's, say Liverpool's sort of top ten players of the modern era or top twenty players of the modern era, you know, there's only really, uh, you know, until until this team, you know, I, I'd say John Barnes would yeah. certainly be in that category, but, but mm-hmm. maybe not, maybe not too many others. Manchester United, uh, you know, Paul Lins, Andy yeah. Cole, Dwight York. Um, but yeah, you know. it's, um, yeah, Rio Ferdinand. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it, it's it's difficult if you're saying you know that, that they have to um, sort of tick two boxes, i.e., be club legend and be um, and be of an ethnic minority. It's you know because I think the most important thing is is that they're the best, you know, the, the best coach or the best manager and. What I think has to change is that there are more opportunities, sort of at entry level and 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 above. So that if it's if it's you know you're looking for an ex player to to coach your under 18s or under 20 or under 20s or under 23s or your reserves or or join the backroom staff, etc. You know, it's very hard when. This is almost a new conversation. It hasn't really been acted on over the last few years. I mean, I, I know the, the sort of Rudy Rule idea has been put in place, you know, as a notion in English football, but it hasn't really been taken um, taken on in, in a literal sense. So, you know, and obviously, Ollie <laughs> us is white men are not best place to talk about this. And 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 we're generally speaking, obviously, you know, we're mm. we're talking about what we as white men have to do in our part, um, but obviously, you know, no solutions can be had or even mm. seriously considered without including the people that uh, that suffer the most in this. So, mm. you know, I just want to clarify that that um, you know, this is just a, a generic discussion about what we as white men have to do um, to do our part to make sure, you know, our our, our colleagues of different ethnic backgrounds. Our um, brothers and sisters are given exactly the same opportunities. So yeah, sorry, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And, and, and you know, if 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 in the if there is, well, look, I I think it, it, this has been said of, of of journalistic appointments as well, where, where it's where um, you know how many of the sort of ten, twenty, thirty um, most high profile. Sports journalists in the UK or political journalists in the UK are, are people of colour, and it's it's shamefully few, shamefully few. Yeah. And I think it needs to, you know, that that needs to come down to. It's not necessarily a case of 
always, you know, looking to looking desperately to to fill a vacant high profile vacancy. It's the I think the biggest challenge, and it applies to coaching as well, and it uh, and probably applies to cabinet appointments and, and so on. There needs to be more of a sort of diversity within the pipeline, so that if you're looking at the, at the um, because you know the journalists who are forty plus in in the UK, which is my generation, um, you know they are certainly not representative of the diversity of the UK. If you look at the journalists yeah. who are thirty plus, they're a bit more representative, but but nothing like representative. If you look at the ones who are twenty plus, who are probably going to enter the system yeah. now, I think I think you know universities and and people you know newspapers taking on traineeships and and so on and therefore it's the same with sort of coaching coaching appointments and you know, lower down the system i think they have to be going out of their way to to you know make sure that in 10 years time there's a really diverse pool of journalists politicians um coaches football managers etc to, to a point for i think that is the idea i think it's i think we've been so slow to recognize these issues whether it's english football or you know uk journalism or you know, from what i gather american journalism is, is much more diverse um but in our country we, we've been so slow to recognize this that it is mm -hmm. going to take probably another generation before things mm -hmm. are anything like representative but I, I don't think you can say well um you know frank lampard got the chelsea job so you know arsenal have to in, appoint sol campbell or that they have to you know it, it's 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 a case of of you, you want to be able to make decisions on on the merits and Chelsea have actually made it you know have had a good record actually on on diversity of you know appointing um coaches who who are who, you know black coaches I don't think for tokenistic reasons but just because they recognized good ex-players who are who are very good coaches and, and they've they've got a good um representation on on their backroom staff but I'm sure um a lot of other clubs, even if they were looking for a, you know, an assistant manager, never mind a manager, would not even know where, where to start looking for. So, um, for, for a, a non-white coach. So, yeah, I, I think I think there is certainly, um, I think that is a real, really a long-term challenge, and it's yeah. going to become much, much, much more distant as a long-term challenge if nothing's actually sort of put, put into place you know we seem to be talking about it for six seven years and things are sort of they move you know the speed of a, a glacier don't they it's, yeah. um, it's, well, it's yeah i mean i'm even looking at myself wally and what we can do here at btp to become more diversified with our content offering but not just our content offering but who's broadcasting on our platform where are the women you know we're trying to trying to embrace that we're looking for diversified talent as well because uh, they have an understanding in their own communities uh, and their own ethnicities and cultures that I will never understand. It's just mm. utterly impossible. And it's very, very important that that's represented. I mean, we talked, we, we did we had Graham Sinis on the show and we were talking to Graham. It was the day after he had spoken on Sky Sports about him challenging his own views and his own inbred bias and so he took some heat for that uh, i would first of all say that we could all do that we can all sit down 
and open our ears and, and educate ourselves because we all have in some, some implicit bias. We all have some bias, whether mm. we're consciously aware of it or not. And I'm certainly open to being educated by people who are affected by these issues because I think it's fundamental to understand, first of all, not everybody has the same experience in life. Um, not everyone, just because you have an experience of a certain situation, that applies to everybody. It doesn't. I think we must understand that when we reach, must reach a day when ethnic identities are all treated equal, where you know, there's no such thing as assimilation because I really don't like that word. I think that mm -hmm. is a loaded word. It's pejorative. Yep. And I yep. think when you talk about assimilation, what they really mean is strip away any culture that is different from mine. You know, privilege is misunderstood. It's people assume that it means, you know, uh, fiscal privilege. It doesn't. And then what I take it to understand is you get a presumption of innocence, you know, because your culture is the dominant and accepted culture and mine isn't. So I don't get the same, uh, the same, the same benefits in society. I'm, I'm not, you know, we'll never understand what it's like to be excluded from a job because of an ethnic name. We'll never understand what it's like to be pulled over. And, and, and certainly I'm speaking in relation to America here, uh, receive a whole different uh, subjective evaluation based on, different factors that have should have nothing to do with it these are the goals that we have to reach mm. we must and, and you know I, I look at my own children i have my their their mother is latina um you know they're they're mixed race my father-in-law is uh is is dutch my mother-in-law is south american my, my wife speaks fluent spanish she's dark-skinned latina you know and then they've got the old Irish heads or big <laughs> Irish heads, I should say. So, um, and it's the beautiful mix. And I look at the, my the godfathers of my children. You know, they're Mexican, they're English. My, you know, and I embrace that diversity. And um, you know, I, I, and even someone like myself is still so much work to do. So, and I, I think it's imperative that we all accept we can do better in this, and uh, we have to reach a day when all of us are treated as equal as human beings. And um, I, I know certainly, Ollie, from knowing you over the years, that's always been uh, something that you have cha championed. You've always wanted to see. You've always been, your moral compass has always been calibrated, you know, in a way that uh, I'm proud to call you a friend. I'm proud oh, to, to have you on this platform. <laughs> and you've always been someone that uh, I, you know, I, I your, your values reflect what I want to see in a human being. And um I, I have to commend you for that. And I'm always grateful. You're such an adequate esteemed journalist to give us, me, the time to come on here and be so generous with that, not just for me, for Callum, for our listeners. And to do that over the years, uh, I'm extremely, extremely grateful. Ollie, it's awesome, always man. a privilege to have you on, mate. Thank you so much. Top man. Thank you very, very much. Thank you And very much. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Cheers, Ollie. Thanks, man. Speak again soon. Take All care. Right, bye-bye.